And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Today, we're going to continue our journey through missions history, and we're going to be talking about the modern missions movement, or as mission historian Kenneth Scott LaTourette refers to it as the great century. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Smither. Smither serves as professor and dean of the College of Intercultural Studies at Columbia International University. Previously, he taught church history and intercultural studies at Liberty University, and he spent 14 years in intercultural ministry in North Africa, France, and the United States. He also serves as vice president of the Evangelical Missiological Society and editor of the Journal of EMS. I'm really personally grateful for his scholarship and looking forward to the conversation today. Dr. Smither, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Yeah. So when we talk about the modern missions movement, what time period are we talking about? Well, time periods are arbitrary and people don't just wake up one day and say, hey, we're going to start the modern missions movement. But I think we're generally talking about 1792 and I would go as far as 1960. So 1792 is when William Carey preached and it was the beginnings of the British Baptist Missionary Society until 1960, really kind of the end of the post-colonial period in the 20th century. Okay, good. Now, you, you just mentioned that these things don't begin kind of out of a vacuum. It's not like somebody wakes up one day and says, hey, let's start a modern missions movement. So can you talk about just some of the contextual realities, some of the things that were going on around this time that led to the modern missions movement? Let me just qualify a little bit that 1792 is really the beginning of the modern missions movement from the English-speaking world. Because if we go back a hundred years with German pietists and even Danish pietists, the Moravians, they were going and they were Protestants. William Carey, Christian Friedrich Schwartz spent 50 years in India before William Carey, but he was German. And so we tend to sometimes create history in our own image from the English speaking world. I would give that kind of qualification. You know, when we think about William Carey, when we think about the Pietist, when we think about the Moravians, I do think that there are spiritual realities that were going on, and I know you'll want to talk about revival and prayer in a bit. I think there were questions in William Carey's inquiry when he talked about the obligation of the church in every generation to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. They weren't using the term Great Commission back then, that's a later term that was coined, but the thought that this applies to every church and every, the church in every generation, and not every Protestant Reformed Christian got that. So there's a theological context there. You know, there were brilliant theologians writing a good bit, and it really took a British part-time pastor and shoemaker to help to make that connection to the street level of the church. 
I think that's a reality. The two other things I would mention that are contextual realities. One is that with the British Baptist Missionary Society in 1792, and there were some precedents. The Anglican Society for the Propagation of the Gospel started in 1701, and the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge had these awesome long names that the SBCK, that started in 1698. And so what we really start to see take off at this period are structures for sending. And that's something that the reformers kind of shut down because the main Roman Catholic structures for sending were monastic orders. And with the Reformation, that's something that doesn't automatically continue our means of sending laborers to the world. The other thing I would just say is that in the 16th century and on greater European migration is continuing. So that's a term that Andrew Walls uses, that Europe was going to the whole world in colonial expansion. And so William Carey had a ride to India because of the British East India Company. And so for better or for worse, there was a movement of Europe to the world, which is quite ironic today because on the global refugee highway, everyone wants to get to Europe. So we're we're seeing a little bit of a reversal. So I think those are some of the things that were brewing in the background at the beginning of this time. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and really that, I want to kind of zero in some on that last point that you made. Obviously, when you think historically about this particular time period, it's not just kind of a great time period for global mission, but it's also a time period for colonialism. And you mentioned that. Can you talk some about the role and the relationship that you see between colonialism and the modern missions movement? Yeah, it's a messy story. You know, it's like that old DC talk song, we've got a history so full of mistakes. I don't think ethically, when you talk to Korean people, I don't think it, they were happy that Japan occupied them for almost half a century and just changed their way of life. When we think about how Indians feel about England being in India for so long, this, I think, there. I mean, with, you know, the slave trade starts with that. There's a lot of sin and a lot of ugliness that came with that. But in the middle of that, the British East India Company provided a way for Henry Martin to get to India initially. And then he would go on to translate the New Testament into Urdu and Arabic and Persian by the age of 31 when he died. If you look at some of the colonial administrators in India, they were very committed Christians. They were committed back to the Clapham sect in England and Wilberforce. And they lived out the gospel as colonial administrators, and they made India a better place. I mean, I think about a place like New Zealand, where you had Bishop David Selwyn, the Anglican missionary bishop who went and was working with the Maori people. And then a British colonialist came afterwards. And so you had kind of two streams. You had an indigenous church and a colonial church. And even if you look at today in the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of New Zealand, it's bilingual, and it kind of reflects these two cultural realities. So it's a messy story, and God seems to use His people even inside the colonial system, you know, for that. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate the way you expressed that and explained that. Again, some more contextual realities, like this was also a time period where there were some great revivals and some great awakenings. Can you talk about kind of the role of these revivals, these awakenings, and how they influence the modern missions movement? Yeah, well, you know, there's that famous Haystack Prayer Gathering in 1806 at Williams College in Massachusetts. And of the young students that were there, I mean, you have someone like Samuel Mills who 
committed his life in prayer as the Spirit fell on that place, and he started the American Bible Society. One of the other guys praying, I don't recall his name, started the Congregational American Board for Foreign Missions. And so there's a pretty good record of prayer and revival and a correlation to missionary activism. That's kind of the Moravian story that precedes this a bit, where God's people are revived and renewed, and they're compelled to go and share the gospel, but also create structures for sending. And so, you asked about great awakenings. From the first great awakening in North America, you will see people, Jonathan Edwards writing up David Brainerd's journals that will be read by Henry Martin and William Carey in England, and so that certainly had an impact. But in the second great awakening in North America from you know 1800 to 1830, that's where you start to see a lot of the mission societies coming from the West in North America during this time, and so there, there seems to be a correlation. But it's not just in America. I mean, the 1905 Welsh revival, the Welsh were sent to China, and then, and we see that revival spreading into a revival in China and into the 1920s. Mark Shaw has written a nice book. I can't remember the name of it, but basically it's on global revivals where he records some of these. But yeah, we I think we can make a good case for prayer and revival and missionary energy as a result. Mm, yeah, that's good. You mentioned at the beginning kind of the Haystack prayer meeting, and I love there's a little small book, and my next question is going to be related to students and the role that they played in this process a little book called Student Power and World Missions by David Howard. Mm-hmm. And he, I love this. He writes in this book about the Haystack prayer meeting. It's kind of funny. He's talking about 1806, Williams College, Samuel Mills, Massachusetts. And he says about Mills, quote, apparently he was unattractive intellectually mm-hmm. and physically. He was reported to have an awkward figure, an ungainly manner, and an unelastic and croaking sort of voice. Yet, He became much sought after by students who were convicted of sin and realized their need of spiritual counsel. And then he goes on to kind of describe what took place at the meeting. So just kind of an interesting time that we see examples of God using all kinds of people to mobilize the church, to mobilize people for prayer, all those kinds of things. So kind of with that in view, can you talk some about the role that students played during this time? Yeah. I mean, gosh, if we actually roll back a little bit to the 18th century in the Holy Club at Oxford, where John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield were members, and Whitfield and Wesley go as SPG missionaries to Georgia. So there's kind of a precedent for student and activism and Methodism, as they called it. And then you've mentioned pretty well the the revival at Williams College, but that really kind of takes off at something that wasn't even intended to be a missionary thing, and that's the 1886 with Dwight L. Moody organized a discipleship camp at the YMCA in Massachusetts, and that really kicked off the student volunteer movement. And so, you know, the Robert Wilder Princeton mission theologian was there, and he was really wanting to recruit people for global mission. It really kind of happens through discipleship and prayer. And from 1886 to 1920, as many as 20,000 students went overseas and they they signed this Princeton pledge by faith, I will become a foreign missionary. And and so people like Samuel Zwamer and, and C.T. Studd were recruited. These were educated, often wealthy. I mean, William Borden, the heir to the Borden Dairy 
industry, went to Egypt. He died there at 23, 24, but it was a lot of energy of going to the world. And so, and we see that actually cycling through again into the 20th century. I was just at the Urbana conference and that was started by a prayer group of students in the 1940s called the Student Foreign Mission Fellowship. And so after about five years of praying, they thought, why don't we put on a big conference? And mm. I don't think they would have ever known that thousands and thousands of students through the years would be part of that. Man, praise the Lord. That's encouraging to see. Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address, again, is sbts.edu slash bgs. All right, there's obviously lots of key leaders, missionary figures during this time. If you kind of had to focus on three or four that you would say are the most influential during this time period, who would be on that list and why? Yeah, yeah, that's a tough question. I think I would go with William Carey. I think if only because of his commitment to Bible translation. And there were, of course, other things, the training of indigenous leaders. So the idea that you could reach a whole country. So William Carey, I think secondly, into the middle of the 19th century, or actually he, yeah, middle of the 19th century, Hudson Taylor going to China and the creation of the China Inland Mission, which goes on today as OMF. The idea that or of course, they were a faith mission, so this is the beginning of raising support and this kind of entrepreneurial type of thing. You know, the China Inland Mission reduced obstacles for people going into mission service, so you didn't have to become an ordained Methodist minister and spend five or seven years in England or the U.S. and and get trained for that context, and then you get to go. He, They did a bit more field-based training. You know, China Inland Mission was decentralized, and so they made decisions for China and about China in China. That was important. I would actually go not so much with somebody that went, but I think Henry Venn and also Rufus Anderson, they were the ones in the middle of the 19th century that said, hey, churches should be self-led by national, self-supporting, self-propagating. Henry Venn himself never left England, but but the Church Missionary Society, the Anglican Mission, got to really test this out by setting apart uh, Samuel I.G. Crowther in West Africa. So he was a Yoruba, what's now Nigerian bishop, and a good, strong mission leader. He was a national indigenous leader, and that was really innovative. And that's really set the tone for what we're really still trying to do today in mission. And then I would say fourth, if I could throw in a fourth, is Samuel Zwamer. His approach and this, you know, he went out to Oman in like 1890 and was in Egypt and other places. But the idea that you can dialogue with Muslims about spiritual truth and not just engage in polemics, 
that was a game changer for how the church was engaging the Muslim world. And that will, that will continue into the 20th century, especially through people like Kenneth Craig and others. So William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Henry Venn, and Samuel Zwamer are my. Yeah. That's a great list. Yeah. I love that list. All right. As you think back on this era, this time period, what are maybe two or three things that come to mind that just, yeah, encourage you as you reflect back on this? Well, I just think we can say all we can about the West to the rest and mission flowing from places of power, but people live very sacrificially and it, they answered the call. And that's really good. I think secondly, just the commitment to translating the Bible. Someone said, I think it was Laman Sana that said that if we translate the Bible, that ultimately that national church, they'll be able to correct all the problems or the mistakes the missionaries made culturally if they have the Bible in their heart language. And so mm. I think that's the best thing the Protestant Reformation brought to global mission was the priesthood of the believer and the authority of Scripture. There have been so many stories. I was just reading an account today from Ethiopia of, of a witch doctor in a village who found a copy of the Scriptures and read it and believed and led his village to Christ. And so, mm. so the Word is powerful. I do enjoy some of the innovations of this period. And so again, someone like Henry Venn, Rufus Anderson, others that are that are really working hard to work themselves out of a job and to establish indigenous leaders who will be mission leaders. And there's, I think, some really some really good efforts at that. So mm-hmm. I find that encouraging in this period. Yeah, that's good. I want to ask the question kind of on the flip side. You know, sometimes when we look back at these eras, and we call them things like modern missions movement and great century, we tend to, if we're not careful, we can romanticize and idealize these figures in this time period. So maybe what what would be two or three things that would be maybe discouraging or concerning to you that have kind of come out of that period or that went on during that period? Well, I think it's kind of all wrapped up in the colonial question that there were many missionaries, and I think people like Robert Moffat and David Livingstone, others that came from Europe that believed that European civilization was superior. I think if we're honest, we're all ethnocentric in the sense that we we like how we do things better than other people do things. Sometimes we're not even aware of that. I think that that was an attitude that needed changing. I think a second thing that's discouraging as well, we celebrate Henry Venn and the setting apart of, of Samuel Ajay Crowther for West African mission. The CMS missionaries that came after that, they removed Crowther and they put Westerners in his place. And so there was a reversal. We went backwards with that. And so I think generally speaking, and I think we from the West on mission today need to keep thinking about this, is the same Holy Spirit that Hmm. empowers and guides us, guides national brothers and sisters for the work. And we from the West are often very confident. We have a plan. We have money. We bring power with us. And that kind of mucks things up. Mm, yeah, that's good. I want to switch now to some more kind of rapid fire questions. And I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball from maybe what I had sent to you earlier. Okay. Are there any missionaries during this time period that you find pretty interesting, fascinating that maybe we haven't already discussed up to this point? Somebody that you kind of just think back on and you're like, either people don't know much about, or you just find intriguing and, and interesting for whatever reason. Wow, that is a curveball. You know, there's one guy right now that I'm blanking on his name, but he was, I think, Norwegian. 
He went to North India, where there were really significant revivals and great work. He had spent time in prison. So he was an ex-con who got out and somebody gave him a chance. And he went and had a great fruitful ministry in the north of India. And I think mission organizations like the IMB or other large, you know, you do background checks on people for good reasons, but maybe God gives some people a second chance to mm. to connect with the broken where they are. And, you know, he's so obscure, I don't even remember his name now. So Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think you definitely hit the target there with fascinating missionary that you could say is a Norwegian former convict that went to India and God used him and blessed him. I think that hits all the, the boxes there. The next question is kind of a fill in the blank question. And maybe you've already touched on this to some degree, but just looking for kind of a, maybe a quicker, shorter answer. The best thing about the modern missions movement was blank. The Bible, translation of scripture. Okay. Yep. That's good. On the flip side, the most discouraging thing about the modern missions movement was blank. Western power and the perceived cultural superior of the West. Okay, good. Maybe two or three books on this era that you might recommend. Yeah, well, I really like Andrew Walls's book, The Missionary Movement in Christian History. That's a collection of essays, but that's just some really awesome stuff, especially on 19th century Africa, and some mm. of the questions that he's looking at, that was his era. And so, Walls is, of course, kind of the father of world Christian studies, and so it's actually a collection of essays. With that, another kind of pioneer in world Christian studies is Dana Robert, who's at, just, I think, recently retired from Boston University, but she's put together a book just called Christian Mission, How Christianity Became a World Religion, and so that does cover more of the history of the church, but I think part two and three of that book are really powerful. And I know we're talking 19th century, but I would recommend two books by Brian Stanley. One is his monograph on the 1910 Edinburgh World Missionary Conference, and then this really beautiful book called Christianity in the 20th Century, which is just so well done and such a rich, rich resource. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. I think our listeners will appreciate that. All right, last question. What are maybe two lessons for us to learn from this noteworthy period in missions history? Well, I think just as Jesus called us to go and to live sacrificially and to live simply, a lot of people died in the 19th century going to the world and responding to a call of faith. Hmm. And so I think that's a good lesson. I think the other is, is that, you know, when I was in my mission training, one of the trainers said, let us go with a learner's posture. Let us come asking questions and listening and learning. And that just, especially now that we from the West are really the minority in global mission in going to the world. We've been talking a lot in my classes this week about multicultural teams and how, how Westerners serve on the same teams with majority world Christians, where they're from and where they live. And and so a learner's posture, a humble posture. And I would say we have to really kind of do that a bit more, but just because sometimes we're white or there's an assumption that we might be in charge or have the money. So I'm not sure the 19th century mission movement did a great job of having a humble learner's posture. And mm. We kind of want to want to learn from what they didn't do well in that area. That's good. Dr. Smither, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. My pleasure. Thank you. 
To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.